Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Webbs. I'm so excited to have you guys here as we continue our study on the names of Jesus. I want to welcome y'all. Welcome those of you that are watching us online. Glad to have you with us as well. We are continuing our study in the names of Jesus, and tonight we're looking at the name of Jesus, Jesus as the rider on the white horse. So this is out of Revelation uh, 19. That's where we're going to be this evening. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to get to that, that passage at the end of our time. But let me open us up in a word of prayer. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we love you and are grateful. Grateful for all the ways that you walk with us, the ways that you're near to us. God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word, that you would be present tonight, that you would be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're looking at Jesus as the rider on the white horse. Uh, but before we get into our passage uh, in Revelation, we're going to actually start in Acts chapter 1. Um, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus has died and um, resurrected, and he's spending time with the disciples. So the, the resurrected Jesus in Acts 1 is hanging out with the disciples. And we see this peculiar scene um, in, in, in verse 4, uh, Acts 1, 4 through 6. You can turn with me there if you want. Um, we see this peculiar scene where Jesus is talking to them and giving them instructions. And I want to look specifically uh, at the question that they ask Jesus. In Acts 1, verse 4, uh, while he, Jesus, was with them, the disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have, uh, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And that's the question that I want to hone in on. What a seemingly peculiar question. Uh, the resurrected Jesus has just come back from the life and said, uh, you are about to receive the Holy Spirit. And in response to that, they say, okay, are you about to establish the kingdom? Uh, this is what's on their minds after Jesus says you're about to receive the Holy Spirit. And this, this question seems crazy at, at first glance, but when we look closer it's not. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon certain judges, certain warriors, certain prophets in a way that gives them extraordinary power. So all throughout the, the tapestry of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit shows up in the kingdom of God's people to make extraordinary things happen. Think about Joshua. Think about Gideon. Think about Samson and Saul. And so they know all these stories about how the, uh, the Holy Spirit was used throughout the kingdom of God's people. And so when, when Jesus shows up and says, you're about to get the Holy Spirit, they, they're thinking about the kingdom of God. Is, is God going to use us now in this way once we receive uh, the Holy Spirit? And so that's where I kind of want to begin our time tonight. But I want to push pause right here in Acts 1, and I want to rewind in our Bibles a thousand years, okay, and I want to go back a thousand years to the life of David, okay? So a thousand years before this scene in Acts 1, we're going to rewind to a story um, 
in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, we encounter David in what is known as the Davidic covenant. So I want to go back here and look at the Davidic covenant, and I want to look at all throughout, to prove this point, all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets foretold a king that would redeem Israel. So we're thinking about Jesus as the rider on the white horse, as this victorious king, the one who comes in riding on a white horse. But before we get to that point, we're looking at what the prophets foretold. So we're going a thousand years before this question of the disciples, backing up all the way to the Davidic covenant. So we're beginning to understand why the disciples think this way. Now, the Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel 7. When we look here, uh, we are um, at the second king uh, within the monarchy. So we know that um, the people had judges that ruled them. They didn't want that. They wanted kings. They wanted to be like the other kingdoms that they saw. They wanted the king to rule them. Now we're in the life of David in the second king of the monarchy. And this is what uh, the Lord says to Nathan to tell David. He says in verse 8, 2 Samuel 7, So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all of your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they had done ever since the day that I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Verse 12, when your time comes and you you and the, you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul whom I removed it before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and the entire vision to David. Now, this is known as the Davidic covenant, wherein we begin to understand why the disciples thought the way that they did um, when Jesus appears. They begin to think that he's establishing this earthly kingdom. And it's um, because all of the prophets foretold this since the Davidic covenant that we find in 2 Samuel. Some important things to note here. In verse 10, we see God say, I will designate a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Uh, in verse 16, I will raise up after you your descendant. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So he's given this covenant uh, to David. So the line, uh, the reason that Jesus comes from the line of David is because of this covenant that the Lord makes with him. With your line, with you, I'm going to establish uh, my kingdom. So then imagine this scene. 
Uh, Israel is ecstatic, right? They've clamored for a king. They've asked for a king. And now on the second king, two kings into their monarchy, Yahweh is making a covenant with them. I'm going to establish you, and no longer in the days of the judges will people oppress you or besiege you, but I will establish you and plant you forever, and with me your kingdom will reign forever. So they're ecstatic. Israel is so excited about their new political setup and with what David is gonna or what God's gonna do through the house of David. However, from that very point on, Israel was forced to face the flaws of their kings for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, all the while anticipating this political peace that they were covenanted. So from the time of David, about a thousand years before Jesus, let's fast forward about 300 years uh, to Isaiah 36. I just want to hit one high point here in the kingdom of Uh, In Isaiah 36, um, not only has the Davidic covenant not been fulfilled, so for 300 years, uh, Israel is waiting for this peace. For 300 years, they're waiting for this this king that's going to establish Israel. Um, For 300 years, it's not been fulfilled. Instead, rather, all of Judah has been captured by the Assyrians. Uh, When the word gets to King Hezekiah, king of Judah, who, by the way, is of the line of David, uh, Hezekiah seeks the Lord. Overnight, the angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrians who had surrounded the city. So all of the land has been besieged. They're, they're finally down to the last city where Hezekiah is. Hey, we've already taken everywhere else, and now we're about to take you next. Hezekiah seeks the Lord. Overnight, 185,000 people are killed by the Lord, and the rest of the Assyrians retreat. So right now, uh, obviously, Israel comes awake. Hey, is Hezekiah the one? For years and years and years, we've been waiting for this man who God's going to lead his kingdom to peace. Is this the one who seeks the Lord, and the Lord fights for us, and nobody's going to attack us anymore, and we're going to have peace? No, he's not the one. One chapter later, uh, Hezekiah strikes a deal with the Babylonians that leads to the Babylonian exile. So they're now faced to f- uh, forced to face the failure of their own king again. One chapter later, uh, he strikes a deal with the Babylonians. They're forced into exile. The possibility of having the Babylonian empire as an ally Uh, was appealing to Hezekiah. He didn't want to face another Assyrian siege without any allies. And so one chapter after trusting the Lord, he's making allies and upsetting the Lord. Um, This leads to the exile. Fast forward another 100 years, around 600 years before Christ. Now we arrive at the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. We're in 2 Kings 25 at this point. Uh, God's people are told by these new rulers that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Hey, don't be afraid. Everything's fine. Uh, just live peacefully and do whatever Nebuchadnezzar says. So now they're under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. They're um, taken by him, taken captive. They have to do whatever he says. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is conquered by Babylon about 60 years later. So 60 years, they're in captivity there. Cyrus the Great 
um, conquers Babylon, allows God's people to return and begin rebuilding the temple. So now we're still following the God's people, waiting on the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled. They return at five, 515 years before Christ arrives, before the birth of Christ. The temple is being rebuilt uh, in Jerusalem by Zerubbabel. And if we fast forward another 500 years of anticipation, another 500 years of disappointment, another 500 years of the covenant not being fulfilled, another 500 years of not being fulfilled, we arrive at Herod the Great. 20 years before Christ, uh, we see Herod the Great begin refurbishing and expanding the temple. Now, when Jesus was born, uh, Rome was allowing Herod the Great to rule all of this area of Palestine, from Sea of Galilee uh, all the way down to the Dead Sea. So this whole area that we know in the New Testament in the first century, this whole area, um, Herod the Great is ruling. Rome is primarily interested in uh, Syria and Egypt that was connected by Herod the Great. And as long as Herod kept the peace, uh, Rome allowed him to rule. He's known as like a puppet king. Hey, you can keep that area as long as you keep it peacefully and keep this at peace and rule this area. Uh, you can stay there and be the king, kind of do whatever you want. But Rome is really in charge. Rome is making sure that that area is peaceful so that they can connect Syria to Egypt. And so um, I say that to say that when Jesus is born, you have this um, very tense political situation where you've got Roman rule, you've got Herod, uh, and who's trying to keep the peace. This is the same uh, Herod the Great, by the way, that uh, ordered all of the baby boys to be killed when he heard that there was a new king in town. The same, uh, the guy that was asked to keep the peace is, is killing all the babies so that there's not a new king uh, rise up. So this is the political scene when we begin to arrive at the time of Jesus. An established kingdom was foretold for years and years and years before Christ, um, starting with the Davidic covenant and other prophecies, but God's people continue to wait in anticipation, in exile, and in captivity. And then we arrive at Jesus. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God was constant all throughout his earthly ministry. And so when we think about and we read the Gospels, the four Gospels which tell the life of Jesus and his ministry, when we think about them with this political understanding, it brings a new light to our understanding of what Jesus is saying. When he speaks about a kingdom, um, they're thinking about it, the kingdom that they're promised. And they're thinking about it in the context of they've got Herod killing people. They've got the Romans marching around and, and ruling with an iron fist. And it's in this context that Jesus shows up and starts talking about a kingdom. Uh, let's look, as we think about Jesus in his life, uh, at, at Luke 19, 35 to 40. Now, remember, our text tonight is how Jesus is a rider on the white horse. And so specifically, uh, I want to compare and contrast that to this passage in Luke 19. Um, in Luke 19, we see uh, we're right at the beginning of the Passover, and we see Jesus descending into Jerusalem on a donkey. So Jesus is the rider on a white horse, and there's... God's people who were covenanted 
covenanted this king, and here comes this king riding on a donkey. In Luke 19, 35 to 40, that says this, Then they brought to Jesus the donkey. After throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. None of these words are by accident. They praise God in a loud voice. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a very risky thing to say at the Passover in Jerusalem. You have all this political tension. Everybody's in the city for Passover. Rome has sent troops to secure the city so that it doesn't tilt and lose control. Uh, um, It's just tense. And it's in this context that Jesus shows up on this donkey and all of his disciples are saying, blessed is the king. When Herod had just killed all the babies for saying that. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're not saying this out in the wilderness. They're saying it in Jerusalem at Passover when everyone is there. The Pharisees ask Let's continue on. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees of the crowd tell him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them. Jesus answers, I tell you, if they keep silent, the stones are going to cry out. So two couple of things about this. One, the disciples are declaring in a loud voice, Blessed is the king. And it, and it colors it in a new light when we understand that they're expecting a kingdom. Amidst this political tension, they're expecting a literal kingdom. Blessed is this king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees understand as well because they're there um, asking, hey, rebuke your disciples. Correct them. This is your chance. Why would they say that? The Pharisees understand exactly what Jesus is proclaiming by descending into the Passover city on a donkey. They know Without a doubt, the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. So they're at the Passover, just ready to have their festivities. They're seeing all their family and extended family. And in comes this Jesus guy on a donkey. Then from this, they know exactly what's happening. He doesn't um, rebuke the disciples. It turns out that's where the turmoil begins to unravel. He, he shows up before the Sanhedrin, uh, which is a, a ruling religious authority that does not have the, the power to sentence to death. That's why they engage with the other political leaders. So now he's in front of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night trial. Not even everybody is there. So we pick up this story when I jump to Matthew 26. From this, we see Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Uh, The high priest stands up in verse 62 of Matthew 26. The high priest stands up and says to Jesus, don't you have an answer for these men that are testifying against you? It's the middle of the night. The Sanhedrin know what Jesus is proclaiming. 
Jesus kept silent. The high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? You have said it, Jesus said, but I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming, coming on the clouds of heaven. So this Jesus that just descended on a donkey says, not only did I descend on a donkey and not only are you saying I'm the Son of Man, but I'm going to descend on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tears his robes at that statement because he knows what Jesus is saying. He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. They spat on his face and beat him. The others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Tell us who hit you. And from here, we see Jesus begin to be uh, beaten and crucified and passed around to the different political leaders for claiming that he was a king and he was going to descend from heaven. Uh, the statement that caused the high priest to tear his robes and led the Sanhedrin calling for the death penalty is that statement of Jesus descending from heaven. There's no ambiguity in his claim to the Sanhedrin. They knew precisely what he meant. Even the disciples and the others around knew exactly what he meant. Fast forwarding to the, to the cross, it, the uh, mockery continues all the way to the cross. I would call it the nervous mockery. I read the mockery and I think that they, they're mocking him and testing him, but they're also waiting with bated breath. Is this the real deal? In Luke 23 at the cross, we see this statement, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They're getting more and more confident, more and more confident as they continue to crush him and crush him and crush him. But even at the cross, at the point of death, all the people are there. All the leaders are there. The soldiers are there. Even the criminals on the cross, what are they doing? But watching. Is this Jesus the real deal? Is this the king? Uh, speaking of Jesus' talking and teaching on the kingdom, even in the prayer of Matthew 6, we see, May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was very clear to them that Jesus was going to rule. It makes sense then why the disciples were anticipating, after the resurrection in Acts 1, an earthly kingdom. It makes sense that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to establish this kingdom on earth, to overthrow Rome, to, to overthrow uh, the political powers. Uh, but that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. They've been waiting in anticipation, waiting in anticipation, waiting in anticipation. Now Jesus has died and resurrected, still more waiting. In fact, after the ascension, um, they're, they're standing there, and what happens? Two men in white robes appear. What are you doing? He's going to come back the same way that he left. Why are you still standing here? I think that they were literally just standing there waiting for Jesus to come back on that white horse, to come back and set up. They didn't know what to do, just still waiting for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom. But then that's not what happened. More waiting, more waiting, more pain, more anticipation. So from there, we're going to jump to Revelation 19. This is, now we've set the plot for our text. Revelation 19, we're going to read 11 to 16 in just a second. But this is the plot for our text. We've had uh, the prophecy about a king coming. 
Then we have Jesus saying, I'm, may your will be done, your kingdom come, teaching on his kingdom all throughout his life. And then he ascends all the way, uh, fast forward to the end of the first century now, at the very end of the first century, years after the crucifixion of Jesus, years after the resurrection of Jesus, years after the ascension of Jesus, we encounter John on the island of Patmos. John, the author of Revelation, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the last disciple remaining at the end of the first century. Every other disciple had been picked off by martyrdom as they carried the gospel to the ends of the earth. So not only did Jesus not come back that day that he ascended, but years and years and years and years go by. And then we see John on an island, the last man standing. Churches have been planted. People have been saved. The Lord is adding to the number of the churches daily. But in terms of those apostles, they're all gone. John's the last one left. Side note, to me, this is one of the most compelling arguments for Christianity. All the disciples saw something in Jesus that they were willing to give their life for. He was the pearl of great price. This is one of the most compelling um, arguments for Christianity. Uh, And just before, though, just before 100 A.D., at the end of the first century, at the very end, we find John sitting on an island, writing the book of Revelation. Now, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage. Listen to the way that Spurgeon sets the plot. Imagine, try to imagine in your mind this scene of what it would feel like to be John, to have been in love with Jesus, to have been loved by Jesus, to walk with the disciples, to experience all that you experienced, And at the end of the century, at the end of your life, all those years later, you're alone, the last one left. Charles Spurgeon says this, The beloved John was, above all other men, familiar with the humble Savior he had leaned his head upon his bosom, and better knew than any other of the apostles the painful beatings of the Lord's sorrowful heart. He had seen the dear sufferer on that dreadful night when he is covered with gory sweat in Gethsemane, He had seen him after he had been buffeted and scourged in Herod's palace and Pilate's hall. He had even stood at the foot of the cross and seen his divine master in the extreme agonies of death. And therefore, the tender, affectionate heart of John would never permit his master's suffering image to fade from his memory. John would have described Jesus as a footman going forth to the fight alone, with with no armies following him. All of his disciples forsook him and fled. Jesus himself wearing no glittering armor, but with his garments dipped in blood and his face smeared with shame. John would have told you about the solitary champion that fought alone amid the dust and smother of the battle how Jesus fell and bit the dust so that his foe set his foot upon him and for a moment rejoiced over him. John would have told you how he leaped again from the grave and trod down his adversaries and he led captivity captive. So this is where we find John at the end of his life and at the end of the first century, 
Uh, Jesus is gone. All of his counterparts in ministry are gone. Ministry is a heavy and emotional burden to bear, even when you, when you have others in the trenches with you. Um, so I can't imagine the, the weight of silence that John felt at the end of his life in solitude on this island. And it's in this context that the disciple that Jesus loved is granted this extraordinary gift in Revelation, a gift of encouragement. He's given a vision, and he records it, whereby the entire New Covenant church can be encouraged. Let's pick up the text in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened. There was a white horse Its rider was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Can you imagine this scene and the contrast of this scene versus what what John witnessed? Now, we're not going to spend time uh, parsing out each piece of this passage tonight, uh, but this much is clear. Uh, Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the victorious victor uh, riding in on the white horse who's here to judge and make war, and no one is worthy. No one is worthy. He has a name that we don't even know. That's how unworthy we are. The color of the horse here denotes victory, triumph. A Roman conquerors on returning from a triumphant military campaign would ride, uh, ride up the Via Sacra, the, the center of town, the Broadway of ancient Rome, all the way down and parade all the way to the Colosseum in a parade of victory. This is the Jesus, the victor, returning on a white horse. So then, right before the last apostle passes away, right before the history book is closed on the events of the first century, God peels back the curtain and gives this disciple that he loves this gift of encouragement. Jesus had already promised trouble in this life, and the disciples had experienced that in full Measure as they planted churches all over the first century world filled with political turmoil. In John 16, Jesus said, I told you these things so that in me you'll have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus had already promised that he had overcome the world. And here in this vision, John gets a sneak peek into the future. Charles Spurgeon closes uh, his opening part about this. So, Imagine this as as Charles speaks about this text. He says this about John. But now a door was opened in heaven, and John saw a scene as God sees it. 
He looked upon it from heaven's point of view and saw the conflict between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, between truth and error, saw it in heaven's own clear view, and then he wrote the vision that we might also see it. Oh, if we are sharers in this conflict, if we are following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, if we are pledged to the truth and to the right, if we are sworn to the precious blood of atonement and to the grand doctrines of the gospel, it will do us good and stir our blood to stand on one of the serene hilltops of heaven above the mists of earth and look upon the battle which rages still upon the earth and will continue to rage until Armageddon shall conclude the war. If we can behold the scene, God strengthening our eyes, it may strengthen our hands for the conflict and our hearts for the fray. 2,000 years ago, nobody expected the Messiah to come rolling into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was predicted and it was foretold, but nobody was ready. It's been predicted and foretold that Jesus will come again riding on a white horse. In Luke 12, it says this, You also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We have a choice, all of us. We can accept Jesus on a donkey, or we can face him on a horse. In the end, every knee will bow. For those of us who are believers, for those of us who are weary on the island of Patmos and feel alone, Waiting. May we behold the scene, strengthening our hands for the conflict and our hearts for the fray. Let me pray for you guys and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you and are grateful. God, we are grateful that you are the victorious king. We are grateful that you are near. God, we are grateful that you have given uh, John this encouraging picture of the end and that we know that you win, that you are the victor, that you will return on the clouds riding on a white horse. God, we give you praise uh, for what you've done to redeem us and to uh, redeem us into your family. God, we give you praise for your goodness. We pray that we would walk in a way that glorifies you and what you've done for us. God, I pray that anybody watching or hearing this that does not know what it means to walk with you or know you, that has not accepted the gift that you came into Jerusalem to give, that they would know you and walk with you in a relationship. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.